0: To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray and uh, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, uh, for technology um, as frustrating, um, as uh, diverse, uh, uh, not diverse, as as divisive and um, distracting it could be. Um, Here it is, being a blessing to us. Uh, and so, Lord, I-, I pray for my mind and my focus that it would be a holy on you, Lord, um, and that you would go to work, God, that you would transcend technology and time, and that the Spirit would uh, empower this sermon to soften hearts and open eyes, that we would see you as more glorious than ever before. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so, Kelly and I were in the car with the kids one afternoon, and Evangeline asks like the question. She goes, "Daddy, where do you babies come from?" And Kelly and I kind of give each other that look, and you know, what do you do? Uh, b- before either of, of Kelly and I could respond, Levi, no, I'm sorry, Madison pops in, and she's like, "I know where babies come from. Babies come from mommy's butt." and we all just start dying laughing. Uh, and honestly, at one point I'm like, man, I mean, that's close enough. Like I, I don't have to explain it now. Uh, but to my better judgment, uh, decided to go ahead and start explaining where babies actually come from. And, uh, after giving my five minute spiel about the birds and the bees, there's this kind of long pause, like it's sinking in and all of a sudden, uh, Levi starts dying laughing. He's like, "Ah, and we're like, what's so funny? He's like, Madison, one day you're going to have to push a baby out. And like the girls are like, no, and we're just, it's funny. So now of course, Levi being the brother loves to remind the girls that one day they're going to be pushing babies out of their situations. Uh, This is the way the Navarros did the birds and the bees. Uh, but anyway, when we were all done with the birds and the bees, Evangeline had a follow-up question, and she asked, So then, Daddy, where does God come from? And there I was, explaining the Sadie of God on Antonio Parkway. Uh, here's the thing about that question. The questions about origins are some of the most important questions we could ask in life. Like, and here's the thing. Everybody at some point in some sort of way wonders, right? Like theologians, apologists, uh, astrologists, stay-at-home moms, salespeople, baristas, my six-year-old daughter. At some point, all of us are asking the cosmological question, where did it all come from? That's, that's what that question is basically asking. Where did God come from? And the question isn't just like curious information. It's not a random bit of knowledge that's fun to talk about, but it's not totally applicable to life. Like, you know, the origin of tacos, which, by the way, is both Middle Eastern and Hispanic. The flatbread tortilla became... The flatbread became... Anyway, it doesn't matter. The origins of life and God are not like the origins of tacos. Uh, It's not trivia. It's not like Joe and I talking about the what what Star Wars trilogy is the best one. Or it's not like Kelly and Ryan having a discussion over like what team is better, the Patriots or the Chargers. Uh, you know, those those things aren't actually, they don't matter to life. Unless you're Ryan Autry, then they probably do. Uh, the thing is, is that for Evie's question, where did God come from? The answer to that question has huge implications on how we live our lives, how we work, how we treat one another, and our pursuit of happiness. Like what you believe about life, it matters. Even if you've never like really talked about it directly or think about it often or read a book about the aseity of God, you have a general underpinning belief about where it all started. Whether you intentionally form it or not, it's there. And I'd go as far as saying that is dictating how we live our lives. So today we're going to explore the aseity of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. And aseity simply means the absolute self sufficiency of God. That's it. Now, the heart of the sermon this morning comes from Romans eleven thirty six, 36, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This verse tells us three things about God and creation. First, the first thing it tells us is that all things are from him. That is that he is the source of all things. Second, that all things are through him, or that he is the sustainer of all things. And third, that all things are to him, or that he's the goal, the pursuit, the purpose of all creation, including our lives. He is the source, sustainer, and goal. Let's go ahead and start with the source. From him, all things. Now, If you grew up in the church, you're familiar with the passage we read with Moses in the burning bush. And if you didn't grow up in the church, you're at least somewhat familiar with the story if you watched The Prince of Egypt growing up. Basically, the Israelites are enslaved by Egypt, and Moses is this Israelite, uh, but through God's sovereignty ends up becoming basically adopted by uh, Pharaoh's family and is raised in Pharaoh's household. Um, And as he gets older, it dawns on Moses that he looks a lot more like The slaves than he does the rulers. Uh, And at one point, he witnesses an Egyptian soldier abusing an Israelite slave. And Moses steps in and ends up killing the soldier. Uh, That, of course, puts him on the lamb. He ends up exiled. He runs away from Egypt, where he was likely going to be killed. Um, And now he's this nomadic farmer. on a hike, literally, and he comes across this burning bush. And during this conversation with this burning bush, God uh, commands Moses, Moses, to go back to Egypt and to free God's people. God wants to use Moses, and Moses isn't like super stoked about the plan. Like he's got a family and a farm, and according to Moses, he's living a comfortable life. Thing is that the good life isn't always in God's plan. Uh, and at one point, like Moses is trying to figure out what's going on here. And so he kind of second guesses God. He's basically like, okay, so, uh, excuse me, Mr. Burning Bush, who are you again? And God in verse 14 answers, I am who I am. Now this isn't God being sarcastic. Like I got a call once from an unknown number and I didn't recognize the voice. So of course, you know, I'm like, who is this? Uh, and the answer, it's me. And I'm like, me who? And they say, it's me. It's me, me. And I'm like, all right. If I knew who me was, I wouldn't be asking who me is. Uh, and finally, at one point, she goes, it's your mother. And I'm like, oh, all right. My bad. But also, like, why was that so hard? See, the thing is, God's is not making it hard on Moses. God is ultimately, by saying this, he is declaring who he is. He declares himself when he says, I am who I am. He is saying, I am the source and sustainer and goal of all things. Now, here's the thing. Uh, When we talk about God as the The source of all things. We normally hear, you know, a pastor or an apologist get into a conversation about, and this is is really valuable and God glorifying, which is that God speaks and everything comes into existence. Like all of the material world, the stars in space and, and everything in the Milky Way galaxy, all the way down to the smallest atoms and anything smaller than an adam everything uh was spoken into existence it wasn't created of chaos it didn't randomly come about uh and it didn't it did god didn't need help making it he speaks and there it is i want to focus not so much on that god created the material world Uh, i also want us to pay attention to the fact that god creates the substance, source, and fiber that makes life worth living. And in order to talk about God as the source of all things, the first thing we have to recognize is that God simply is not like us. One of the challenges of understanding God is that there's simply nothing to compare him to. I think often by default, all of us, all of us, compare him to ourselves, to mankind, right? Like when we hear about God being a father in heaven, by default, we only know earthly fathers. And so we project our understanding of fatherhood onto God for better or for worse. And when we hear that God is jealous, for example, we only know of like that sinful jealousy, that racial green-eyed monster. And so we are confused and we wrestle with the idea of a jealous God. My point is that it's inescapable to to project creation onto the creator, but it's also a grave mistake in understanding who he is because he is completely otherly. He is not just some big superhero version of man. He's not Superman. You know, Superman is like man, but super, right? He, uh... you know superhero all superheroes are all like better enhanced versions of man um and god is not just simply a bigger better version of ourselves he is completely different there's a, a commentator that i read um that pointed out that it's really not wise to call him the supreme being um because it makes it sound like he is just supremely better Uh, he argues that you should call him the absolute being. And and this makes sense, right? Like a crunchy wrap supreme is just a crunchy wrap, but with sour cream on it. That's not God. He is the absolute being. Absolute in that he is perfectly perfect and utterly and not a supreme person, uh, but something absolutely different. All right, I'm belaboring the point. Here's the thing. This is practically... Good news. This matters to the way we live our lives. Because if God is absolute, then, and if He is the all powerful, all loving, all good, all beautiful God, then those things are real, right? Because if God is learning and growing and becoming, if God is a part of creation, which many people these days believe that God is. Uh, limited to creation, and creation is limited to God, that they're both one. Uh, A common phrase for this is panentheism. Doesn't matter. That's a nerd word. Don't worry about it. Uh, But here's the thing. If, If God is learning and growing, then that means he's not all perfectly. He's just kind of good. And a kind of good God is not a great God at all. But we can have hope because he is perfectly good. Uh, he is perfectly beautiful, and when he speaks, he speaks truth. That tells us that things like love uh, and beauty and truth are real things. I, I went way off topic there, so I apologize. Um, but I do. I just. I guess I just want to make sure that we recognize. Um, that we have a source of perfection and truth. So I want you to, I want, I want us to like really, I feel like I'm being very philosoph- philosophical here. Uh, maybe I've been reading too much in quarantine. I apologize for that. Um, let's do this. I want you to imagine that you're a sailor and then you're caught in the middle of a storm at sea and the captain turns to you because you have the compass and he asks you where north is. He he needs to sell you guys back to the harbor, so you pull out your compass and the arm is spinning in circles and it won't stop. The captain urges you like, "Where is north?" And you look up and you're like, "I don't know." Like we're lost, right? If God is not the absolute being of truth, beauty, of goodness, if He is not perfectly true, perfectly beautiful, and perfectly good, then we are all lost. The good news of God saying, I am who I am, is that those things are real. And we can hold fast to that in a sea of uncertainty, in storms of despair. Like when we don't know the difference, here it is, when we don't know the difference between fake news and important news, between fact or fiction, you can rest knowing that God is absolute, that He's our only source of never failing truth and even though we don't know what's going on and all powerful all sovereign all good god does and he still rules and he still runs reigns and that's good or let's let's put it like this when you're hurt when you're deeply hurt by a loved one when someone you know in authority who's supposed to be an anchor of honor and a symbol of good in your life, when someone like a parent or a pastor, uh, when someone like that betrays you, or when your spouse like breaks your trust and it hurts deeply, the, I'm, I'm talking about the kind of betrayal and the kind of hurt that just rocks your soul, like that deep wound that makes you question all that you know about yourself and the world around you. I know that, that some of us have experienced that from pastors and parents and other people. Here's the thing about the deity of God that those people and those actions are not a representation of God. Right? He will never betray your trust. And what that person did to you changes nothing about who God is and his love for you. And as confusing as life gets, when everything seems gloom, when the world is showing you its ugliest side, we as Christians can rest assured knowing that God is good and beautiful and real. And he is the source of those things. And so that means truth and beauty and goodness reigns. And it's in God and God alone that we find that. When everything else fails, the the God, God's aseity is the only way we can hope in the idea that in the end, love wins. Because God wins. So let's go back into the storming on the boat. Hopefully I don't belabor this metaphor. Uh, But when the waves are crashing over you and the thunder clap, Shakes and reminds you how small you are You've got a compass, you know the way home. God is your north star and your safe harbor God is the source of all creation of you and in me He's the source of the storm even we learned that in uh, our study of Jonah He's the source of the storm Which means maybe he sent it to get your attention to to see his beauty and goodness in a way that you've never seen it before It it all reminds me of Psalm 90, which says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He is the source and he is the sustainer. And lastly, he is the goal of all things. Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna abuse the metaphor. Without uh, a working compass, we're lost. So again, you're in the boat, it's storming, um, and you grab that compass. You found it, you have it, but now when you look at it, north is pointing right at you. So you think north is behind you. You turn around, and the compass spins again, and it keeps showing you that north is right at your chest. Right. That's not good news. The compass isn't working. It's not helping you. The captain's yelling, which way do we go? And you're like, compass isn't working. I don't know. Here's the point. If God is the source and sustainer of love, of peace, of beauty and goodness, then to know those things, to know love and to know true peace and goodness, we have to know God. Which brings us to our last point, which is that knowing God is the greatest fulfillment we could ever have in life. God is the goal. Uh, I think many of us live as though, me included sometimes, um, probably more often than I want to admit, Uh, Many of us live as though God plays some small role in our happiness, smaller role than he actually does, right? Like he's important to your happiness in the same way that maybe a barista is important to your uh, having a good morning. Like God's basically there to serve you. Um, And the narrative, of course, is like you don't really find happiness in God. You find true happiness in yourself. Once you're at peace with yourself, once you live your true life, then you will be authentic and happy. And so we have in phrases and industries surrounded by the phrase self-care, me time, living my truth. Uh, That's Oprah's phrase, live your truth, speak your truth. Um, I think it's important to unplug from the world around us and get rest. Like we are overwhelmingly busy and overwhelmingly distracted. And we need to focus on our spiritual, physical, and mental health probably more than we, most of us normally do. But here's what's interesting about this weird moment in history that we're in right now. Just a few months ago, everyone talked about how much we need more rest, how we need to focus more on ourselves. And now that we are on lockdown, we have more rest and more time than ever before. And yet so many of us are restless. And on one hand, we're happy to be home, but on another, we're like caged animals. And it's because I believe, and I think the scripture shows, that the best form of self-care is not focusing on self but focusing on God. This is what J.A. Packer says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Here's the thing. We all want to be happy in life. And most of us want to be better versions of ourselves. But becoming a better version of yourself means not tapping into more of yourself, but more of God. Inviting him into who we are. After all, that is what it means to be Christ-like. Like Like you could say that being more Christ-like means being more like who you were meant to be an image bearer of the absolute being uh the late rc scroll makes a great point that we aren't really human beings uh because we're never just being like we're always becoming something you are always changing right think about right now you are not the same person you were when this sermon started not because the sermon is is going well uh But because you've thought and experienced and heard things, for better or worse, that you did not think experience, or hear 10, 15, 20 minutes ago. And so, therefore, you're never who you were. It's uh, it's like the saying, you can't step, step into the same river twice, right? And so, with that said, like, you're not really a human being, RC says, that you're more like a human becoming. You're always becoming something. So, the question is, what are you becoming? And on the other hand, we've got God, who is the absolute being, and he is simply being because he is not changing or growing or experiencing anything new. He has always been, he always will be, and he's all-knowing and all-powerful. So what are we becoming? Are we becoming more like Christ, the ultimate being, right you were created as an image bearer and the scripture shows us that to be to be human is to be like Christ you are either becoming more Christ like or you're unraveling and honestly this is this is the scariest depiction of hell to me that we find in the scriptures it's not the fire and the brimstones uh, it 's not the suffering and the gnashing of teeth that, that scares me as much as the idea that that by rejecting god we 're rejecting the very thing that makes us human right like by rejecting God, we reject everything that gives us hope in life and meaning and value in the world. We are god 's prized possession made in his image, the image of the invisible God, and by rejecting his glory. For self-glory, we reject it all. And so that scary, hellish picture that I'm thinking about comes from Romans. It's not the lake of fire. Uh, Rather, it's the unraveling of being an image bearer. It's becoming less and less like God and continually rejecting him. Here's what Romans 1 says. And just notice how it's like the unraveling of all things that makes life worth living. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's self-glory. It goes on later on to say, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And then it goes on. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He hands them over to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. He's basically saying, You want to be anti Christ, right? You don't want to be Christ-like, you want to be something other than Christ. That is probably a more a better understanding of what that means. You want to not be like me. Here, take it. You can have the unraveling uh, of all that's good, beautiful, and true. So anyway, it says, he gives them up to debased minds to do what not ought to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's the unraveling of what makes you human. We are obsessed with knowing ourselves when in order to know ourselves, we really need to know God. And knowing God is the untying of all of those things. Knowing God is the greatest fulfillment you could ever have. And that's the thesis of Ecclesiastes. You can have the whole world, right? The the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, got it all. He's got the whole world. He's got all the power. He's the smartest guy out there. Uh, He's got all the money. He's got all the women. And he looks at his kingdom. He's got everything he could imagine. And what does he say? He declares it all vanity, empty, dead. It's not what he was looking for. C.S. Lewis says it like this. When he, that is God, talks of losing their selves, he means only abandoning the glamour of self, self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. That's from the screw tech You see, God's command to worship, God's command to worship him is an offering. He's saying, Give me your life so that you will have true life. This is what the Bible means when it says to lay down your life so that you will find it. When God demands glory, he is offering you joy. Now, we've been talking about this in like having a high view of self, right? And and it's just important I guess to say like if it's it's not wrong to have uh, an unhealthy view of yourself, right? I guess the point is for for maybe those who are boastful or prideful is like anything that you find that is good in you is only good because it is a reflection of God's absolute goodness. But what about the person who has a low view of self? you know maybe maybe someone well, let me put it this way. there is nothing that anybody could ever do to you or say to you. And there's nothing that you could ever do that will affect your identity in Christ, right? Because that's the thing, is that like our beauty and goodness, our image-bearing quality does not come from within. It comes from God. He gives that to us. And if he gives that to us, then that means it cannot be taken from us. And so for those of us who like... Struggle with self-worth, uh, maybe because of an abusive past or sin uh, that we struggle with. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of the asadi is that like the, the, the goodness that is in God, the beauty, the thing that makes God so lovely, he then says, you are my image bearer. Find worth and value in yourself by finding worth and value in me. Now, here's the thing. Going back to Moses. Moses thought he had a good life when he found that burning bush. He didn't want to let it go. He didn't want the good life to be let go. But at the end of the day, Moses was settling for a small patch of land in a dry and barren desert, on the run from an empire, and God is offering him the promised land. God is offering him God himself. And it's because of who God is that Moses becomes who he becomes. It's because of who God is that Moses goes from an exiled nomadic farmer to an instrumental tool in God's story of redemption, not just for Israel, but for all of, man- all of mankind. And I, I, I mean, that same God that was in Moses is in you and me as sons and daughters of a living God. I love that. Uh, God revealed himself to Moses to provide freedom to his people by getting them to the cross, by getting them to cross the Red Sea. And today God provides you and I a way to know him by dying by having his son die on a cross and spilling his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to draw us near to him through restoration and reconciliation, because that's the thing is that to, to really to know God, to see him as the source, sustainer, and goal, and to experience that he needs to come down to us because we are in rejection of him, but he has done that. And so truth, beauty, and goodness are real. There's such a thing as perfect love of beauty and righteous goodness. We are not wandering aimlessly. And the beauty of the gospel is that the fullness of truth, beauty, and goodness will be fully known because God has promised to fully restore it. And he is doing that even today. He's doing that through you and me as sons and daughters of Christ. You see, as we seek to know him more, by being Christ-like, by loving our neighbors, by growing in our joy and peace uh, and righteousness, we reflect in a small but important way. We live out and fulfill Jesus' prayer, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's happening through us as we grow to be more like him. I've been talking a lot about knowing God. And I kind of made this point uh, up two, three months ago now, the last time I did a sermon. Knowing God is not just information. Like you could memorize verses in the Bible and not actually know God. Knowing God isn't having information. It's an experiential knowledge. It's something that affects who you are. And so the best example that I have is uh, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Right? Uh, Like Kobe Bryant was obsessed with Michael Jordan. He grew up watching all of the videos and dissecting everything that he can get his hands on. And when he became a professional basketball player, he reached out to Jordan. And Jordan says that Kobe would like text him at one, two o'clock in the morning to pick his brain. Uh, At one point, somebody asked Jordan if there's anybody that could beat him one on one. And he's like, yeah, Kobe but only because he stole all my moves. And there's this person online, there's the YouTube video, it's really cool. They basically chop up videos of Kobe and Jordan of like the fadeaway, the jumper, the floater, like even their swagger and it's like a mirror image, right? Here's the point. Kobe knew Jordan better than any of us. He studied him. He obsessed over him and it it became a part of his basketball DNA. And that's, that's what it's like. That's what I mean to know God, to obsess over him, to meditate on who he is, to to watch him, to listen to him, to seek his counsel daily so that it affects. the DNA of our daily lives, so that our joy is rooted in the God of goodness, so that our hope is rooted in his power and sovereignty, so that our lives uh, grow and mature in righteousness to reflect the kingdom of God uh, into our families and our neighbors' lives. So uh, to close it all out and to answer Evangeline's question, Where did God come from? Well, he has always been, and he always will be. And when everything else fails and falters, whether mommy or daddy lets you down, no matter what happens in this life, God is the harbor in the hurricane, the true north to our wandering souls. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.